the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, broadcasting live from the studios of KPDQ in Portland. I'm looking across the glass and there is Clark Hilton. I have not seen his face in this capacity for um, more than a year. Well, we've had a couple of radiothons in studio, but those are the only exceptions. It's really nice to see you, Clark, and to have the opportunity to work together in our old capacity. Anyway, today on the program, we're going to wind our way through lots of the news stories of the last uh, last couple of days. We're also going to share a classic interview with Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They're the co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge. It really focuses on the book of Proverbs, experience the life-changing power of Proverbs, and walks you through over the course of 31 days, uh, sort of a devotional Bible study uh, that helps us to reflect on and glean every bit of wisdom we can find there. He'll be joining us um, this classic interview later in the 5 o'clock hour. And then in the final segment of today's program, I'm looking forward to sharing with you uh, lessons from Haggai. I was reading an article in Christianity Today that drew my attention to this very small book. It's only two chapters long, but it's full of all kinds of wisdom that is applicable to us today. So looking forward to sharing that with you today. Well, the bootleg fire fire rather in Klamath County, after doubling in size from Saturday to Sunday, grew to another 10,000 acres overnight. It's now burned 153,535 acres as of this morning. Well, the fire burning in the uh, Fremont Wanema National Forest and on private land is 0% contained. That's as of earlier today. Well, the fire behavior we are seeing, according to the incident commander, Al Lawson, uh, over the weekend, um, the, uh, the be- fire behavior we are seeing on the bootleg fire is among the most extreme you can find, and firefighters are seeing conditions they have never seen before, end quote. Conditions got to a point on Saturday that firefighters had to uh, disengage and move to safety zones. The Klamath County Sheriff's Office is now also citing or arresting people who stayed in a, the level three evacuation areas or who are trying to go back into those areas. The Sheriff's Office warns uh, there's a high probability of more evacuations to come. Uh, as of Sunday, and this may have been updated since then, level three, which is go now in the Klamath County north of the town of Beatty, uh, the uh, uh, west side of the um, Gadawa Springs Road, north of OC and E, um, that's again in Klamath County. Level two is Get Set, also in Klamath County near the town of Sprague River, Klamath Forest Estates, uh, Moccasin Hills area, the west side of uh, Gadawa Springs Road, south of Oregon Pines Road, and Tableland Road to the river. And level one, which is Be Ready in Klamath County between Beatty and Bly, three miles south of Highway 140 from Yellow Jacket Springs to Fishhole Creek, the area from the intersection of Sprague River Road and Forbes Road, extending east to Godawa Springs and Yellow Jacket Springs and south of the Sprague River. 
There are there is rather an evacuation shelter for the uh, bootleg fire that's set up in the Klamath County Fairgrounds. For the latest information, if you have family or friends there, you're concerned or interested, you can go to the uh, Klamath County Facebook uh, page. There's an evacuation map, uh, sign up for alerts, and so on. Oregon's second largest wildfire is the uh, Jack Fire east of Roseburg. That had burned 10,937 acres, was 10% contained as of Sunday afternoon. The Forest Service uh, campgrounds were also under mandatory evacuations, including Apple Creek, Horseshoe Bend, and Eagle Rock. Although many people have been evacuated, the fires are burning in remote enough uh, locations that impact to human life and property has been somewhat limited, the Statesman Journal pointed out. That could change according to the uh, Oregon State Fire Marshal's incident management team. On Friday, uh, they uh, said that 3,000 homes and structures were being threatened by the fires with Level 2 and 3 evacuations uh, in place. And again, Level 2 and 3, number uh, 2 is get set, number 3 is go now. So that could change according to the uh, uh, incident uh, management team. Um, Governor Kate Brown in late June declared a state of emergency because of what she called the imminent threat of wildfire across the state. And she's declared emergency orders on both the Jack and bootleg fires. Smoke from the growing blazes moved to the north on Friday night, and that gave people on the edges of the Willamette Valley a view of the haze that's being produced by these two fires in southern Oregon. Northwest Oregon, however, the air quality wasn't expected to be impacted over the weekend, and it uh, would have been, uh, uh, wouldn't be until Monday morning that there might even be a chance of some haze. National Weather Service meteorologists uh, say if it's a difficult story in southern Oregon where the air quality monitors have already dropped to moderate in the Klamath Falls area. Uh, and again, you can look at the uh, uh, southern Oregon Cascades, Jack Fire, and southern central Oregon Bootleg Fire uh, online for more information and details on that. Then there's the uh, Grandview Fire. KTVZ rather reported a tall smoke plume was visible for many miles. The fire spread to the south and southwest. The fire was burning on Crooked River National Grassland and on lands protected by the Oregon Department of Forestry. Evacuations were ordered in Jefferson and Deschutes County. Sisters uh, Middle School had been set up as a temporary evacuation point and shelter there. The American Red Cross was at the school helping evacuees. According to the Central Oregon uh, Interagency's Dispatch Center, uh, and large air tankers were working the fire from the air. Engines and crews on the ground were working to uh, set up fire lines. Commanders described the fire behavior as very active. Crooked River Ranch Fire and Rescue told residents by Facebook that while the smoke was very visible from the ranch, it was not threatening to the ranch. As of 10 p.m., and this is on Sunday, the fire was moving away from the ranch. Well, many Oregon fire crews were already responding to the southern part of the state in response to the other fires, uh, the bootleg in Klamath County and the other. And again, those fires continue unabated. Meanwhile, on a busy summer day, Multnomah Falls sees as many as 1,500 to 2,000 visitors. Meanwhile, there are about 50 parking spaces right outside the Multnomah Falls Lodge and the parking lot along I-84. It only holds 184 cars. Both lots get overwhelmed. I'll tell you when we get back in just a moment what's now being required if you want to visit Multnomah Falls. There's also a shuttle that makes it a little bit easier, but we'll tell you more about that. We'll also talk about um, the president calling for hiring more police uh, in a move earlier today to address 
crime increases in some of the larger cities across the country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned before the break, on a busy day in the summer in Multnomah Falls, they can get as much as 1,500 to 2,000 visitors, which overwhelms the limited parking. The uh, parking lot off of I-84 holds about 184 cars, and that's it. Uh, it's just really caused a lot of congestion and safety issues related to that congestion. Well, that's a, a quote from the U.S. Forest Service. Well, in an effort to ease the strain on the lots, it has nothing to do with COVID-19. It has nothing to do with social distancing, apparently. The Forest Service announced on Friday, Friday rather, that visitors are going to need to make advance reservations starting the 20th of this month. There are going to be a total of 600 tickets available for every one-hour time slot between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. daily. The tickets are available at recreation.gov, and they can be reserved up to two weeks in advance. Now, how many times have you just decided at the spur of the moment, let's just drive to Multnomah Falls. You get in the car, you drive down there, you spend a little time. Well, that's not going to be possible, and my guess is those tickets are going to go fairly quickly. So you're going to have to plan ahead if you plan to go to Multnomah Falls. And again, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. daily, that's when those one-hour ticket uh, tickets are available in one-hour time slots. Uh, recreation.gov, they can be reserved up to two weeks in advance. Well, the tickets are free, but there is a $1 reservation fee for every ticket. I'm not sure you can call that free. But anyway, if you ride a shuttle to Multnomah uh, Falls, you don't have to have a ticket. The idea behind the ticket system is really to minimize and reduce the congestion, reducing the safety issues as a result. Well, the Forest Service warns that while the ticket gets you into Multnomah Falls, it still doesn't guarantee a parking space. So you may have a ticket, but that doesn't mean you're going to find a place to stop the car. Uh, Last summer, the Forest Service used a reservation system to reduce crowding during the pandemic. That program was phased out a short time ago. Several years ago, ODOT installed a gate at the I-84 parking lot that's still there. It closes when the lot is full. Officials also encourage visitors to not uh, not drive to the falls at all and use the shuttle service like the Columbia Gorge Express instead. Now, this is the first I've heard of it. I wouldn't even know how to connect to it, but I'm sure it's probably not that difficult if you're interested. The Columbia Gorge Express. And the concern here, of course, is parking. And if you uh, ride the express, that's not an issue. On other news, President Biden today convened a group of federal law enforcement and community leaders at the White House to discuss his administration's comprehensive strategy to reduce gun crime, saying there is no one-size-fits-all approach to combating gun violence and doubling down on the need to hire more police officers and crack down on illegal firearms. The president hosted a number of administration officials, including Attorney General Merrick Garland, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, White House Counsel Dana Remus, and Domestic Policy Advisor Susan Rice, as well as mayors from Washington, D.C., San Jose, California, and police chiefs from Memphis, Chicago, Wilmington, North Carolina, Newark, New Jersey. Well, the president welcomed the attendees. He noted that he and the attorney general, they've been at this for a long time, adding that it seems like most of my career I've been dealing with this issue. Uh, There's no one-size-fits-all approach, the president uh, reiterated. We know there are some things that work, and uh, the first of those that work is stemming the flow of firearms used to commit violent crimes. Well, the president said that includes cracking down on holding rogue gun dealers accountable for violating the federal law. That includes the Justice Department creating five new strike forces, 
to crack down on illegal gun trafficking in the corridor, supplying weapons to cities of New York and the Bay Area. The president went on to say our strategy provides, including funding for law enforcement through the American Rescue Plan for states, cities, and to be able to hire police and pay them overtime in order to advance community policing. The president added that the administration's plan also will invest in community violence intervention. What we want to do is when we know we utilize trusted community members and encourage more community policing, we can intervene before the violence erupts, he explained, saying that has been um, uh, the consensus in our experience. And he, under more than one administration, has been uh, focused on this issue. Well, the White House memo sent uh, this morning to state and local officials discussed the need to put more police officers on the beat and urged the uh, a use of American Rescue Plan funding to hire more law enforcement officers, bringing the police forces back above pre-pandemic levels in communities experiencing an increase in gun violence associated with the pandemic. Well, the president also said the strategy is going to fund other vital services like mental health and substance abuse programs, as well as job training and summer jobs programs. This is going to help prevent crime and support young people, the president said, to pick up a paycheck instead of a pistol. The administration's strategy also will help formerly um, incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, successfully re-enter society with housing, jobs, training, and other support. We know this will help, the president said. This will make us all safer. The American Rescue Plan funds programs to help get job training and apprenticeship work experience uh, and the like so that they can gain stability and security and a chance for a better life. President said, there's a lot more to my strategy, but that's at the core. He then added, it's about coordinating at the federal, state, and local levels. Well, much of the crime is at the state and local level. Before the meeting on Monday, senior administration officials said that the uh, contributors to gun violence are multifaceted, so it takes a multifaceted approach to tackle the issue. One official said the administration is planning to provide federal resources, including additional FBI and ATF uh, funding to help states and localities uh, reduce gun violence. The ARP funding is uh, going to hire additional police officers and advance community policing and investment in community violence prevention. So the president uh, held this meeting today, and there was a press conference that followed that said very little about actual um, criminals, but said uh, more about uh, the guns themselves um, and their desire to reduce the amount of violence in respective communities. Well, Cuba's president is urging the country's revolutionary citizens to counter protesters who are expressing themselves against the communist regime. Thousands of Cubans took to the streets in Havana to lash out at the worsening conditions in the country under the communist regime, the biggest protest in decades, prompting the country's president to call on revolutionary citizens to counter the protesters. President um, Miguel Diaz-Canel uh, who also heads the Communist Party, addressed the country and blamed the U.S. for stoking the anger, according to the Washington Post. We are prepared to do anything, he said. We will be battling in the streets. Well, that may be true. Whether or not he is in charge of that battling remains to be seen. Cuba is going through its worst economic crisis in decades, along with the resurgence of coronavirus cases as it suffers the consequences of U.S. sanctions imposed by the previous administration. Jake Sullivan, the White House National Security Advisor, took to Twitter to say the U.S. supports freedom of expression and assembly across Cuba and would strongly condemn any violence or targeting of peaceful protesters who are exercising their universal rights. Many of the protesters in the town of San Antonio 
De los Habanos were young and hurled insults at the president, uh, Diaz-Canel. Uh, they shouted they were not afraid. Well, thousands of Cubans marched on Havana's uh, uh, promenade and elsewhere. Anti-government uh, government protests broke out Sunday in Cuba, demanding freedom and calling on the disbandment of the country's communist dictatorship. All while some of the U.S. most outspoken, self-professed um, democratic socialists appear to be in lockstep by not acknowledging the historic events unfolding on the island about 90 miles from Florida. Well, thousands of Cubans marched on Havana's um, uh, mail con, uh, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, so I apologize, promenade and elsewhere to protest food shortages, high prices, the coronavirus outbreak in one of the biggest anti-government demonstrations in the country ever. Well, police initially trailed behind the protesters, chanting freedom, enough and unite when motorcyclists pulled out of U.S. flag, but it was um, snatched from him by others. But other flags appeared. The Biden administration was criticized on social media for appearing to have difficulty finding its footing on how to respond to the protests. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican out of Florida, took the State Department to task over a tweet that blamed the protest on concerns over COVID-19 and not the worsening economic situation or the fact that protesters chanted, we want liberty. People in Cuba are protesting 62 years of socialism, lies, tyranny, and misery, not expressing concern about rising COVID-19 cases and deaths. Why is it so hard for POTUS and the people in his administration to say that, Rubio tweeted. Well, critics will likely say that these um, democratic socialists are remaining quiet in the early stages of the protest because there are so many unknowns. Cuban President uh, Canal, uh, who heads the Communist Party, has already called on the country's revolutionaries to counter the demonstrations. Whether or not that will escalate remains to be seen. Meanwhile, the Vermont senator, Senator Sanders, who in the past defended some of Fidel Castro's policies, has stayed quiet on the Cuban pro-freedom uprisings. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show live and in person. First time in a very long time. Coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dan Britton and Ron Forseth, co-authors of the Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. That classic interview coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Returning to some of the headlines, former President Donald Trump easily won the 2024 GOP presidential nomination poll at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, gathering this weekend in Texas. Well, Trump, who's repeatedly flirted with making another presidential run in 2024 to try to return to the White House, captured 70% of ballots cast in the anonymous straw poll, according to results announced by CPAC on Sunday afternoon. That's a boost from the 55% support he won in a hypothetical 2024 Republican primary matchup straw poll at CPAC Orlando in late February. I want to personally thank each and every one of you for your incredible support, uh, Trump said, as he gave the Dallas uh, the Dallas events a keynote address minutes later. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in a distant second at 21 percent. No one else among the 19 potential 2024 Republican White House contenders topped 1 percent. And by the way, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is um, showing rather strong in other nationwide polls. In other developments, President, uh, former President Trump slammed Democrats over calls to pack the Supreme Court, alleging intimidation, and Representative Joni Heiss slammed the Democrats for pushing the all-star game out of Georgia, defending the decision 
um, to Raffensperger. Well, billionaires uh, descended on Sun Valley in a private jet or private jets to talk about climate change. A cabal of uh, some of the most high-profile people in media, finance, and technology descended on Idaho's resort town of Sun Valley in private jets this week to tackle, among other things, climate change, to which they were contributing. On Tuesday, the day the conference kicked off, traffic from private jets got to be so busy that the Federal Aviation Administration temporarily banned planes on the West Coast from taking off. The FAA said it briefly held planes on the ground at their uh, departure uh, airports to avoid congestion in the airspace around Sun Valley. The manager of the Friedman Memorial Airport in the neighboring town of Haley, Idaho, uh, told NPR ahead of the uh, conference he expected more than 90 private planes. Well, a session preaching the perils of climate change to people who flew to the event on their own carbon-emitting Gulfstream jets rankled some business leaders um, uh, that contacted uh, the event later in the week. While talking climate change on his private jet, one CEO remarked with a laugh referring to Gates. In other developments, Barry Diller declared the movie industry dead, saying it will never come back. I'm not so sure about that. Well, a California Uber driver was allegedly stabbed to death by a teen passenger. Prosecutors want her charged as an adult. She is in custody. And the Bucks dominate the uh, Suns in the first NBA Finals win since 1974. Rodents are chowing down on Teslas, causing thousands of dollars in damage. And a California restaurant posts a slow service sign blaming handouts, saying no one wants to work. Well, anti-communist protests have erupted in Cuba. Cubans in over 32 cities protested in retaliation to the communist regime's chanting freedom, down with communism and uh, patria y vida, or homeland and life, in a live Facebook video. The demonstrators demanded access to food, to medicine, vaccines, and the end to communism amid a massive COVID-19 outbreak. CNN International correspondent and Havana Bureau Chief Patrick Oppmann said, I have lived in Cuba for nine years and the scenes we saw today were stunning. The protests spread more quickly than anyone could have imagined. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but the level of discontent and anger isn't going anywhere. The Wall Street Journal wrote, Latin American correspondent Jose de Cordoba, Cubans always talk about the uh, doble cara, hiding your true feelings and thoughts because of the fear that comes with living in a police state. This is what happens when a people take off their masks. And White House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it's not about freedom, despite the fact that they themselves in Cuba are crying out for freedom. Well, as of late last night, socialist Bernie Sanders, who heaped high praise on the government of Cuba, was silent. Katie Pavlich last night says uh, nothing from the White House, Joe Biden, or the secretary, uh, Blinken, on Cuba, telling Twitter. Uh, Ariel Davidson says Biden White House predictably out of out to lunch as Cuba erupts in protests against its socialist government while waving the American flag. Marco Rubio, again, in frustration with the dictatorship, incompetence, greed and repression is mounting rapidly. And Dan McLaughlin says one hopes that the Cuban regime can and will fall to the Cuban people, if not now, soon, and we should do whatever we can to help that along. Cuba Libre. Well, Denver police uncovered over a dozen guns, 1,000 rounds of ammunition, near the All-Star Game venue. Well, from the story, law enforcement agents expressed their fears that this could have potentially become a Las Vegas-style shooting, as at uh, least one 
of the two rooms involved is said to have, uh, have a balcony that overlooks the downtown area, which could have been a vantage point over the big crowd celebrating the Major League uh, Baseball Midsummer Classic. A medical journal says parents should lose veto power over gender-destroying decisions of children. From that story, taking LGBT patient testimony seriously also means that parents should lose veto power over most transition-related pediatric care, end quote. Well, the most likely next mayor of New York calls Democrat efforts on gun laws insulting. Referring to Eric Adams, he complained about Democrats wanting to ban what they call assault rifles instead of dealing with the illegal use of handguns that result in the vast majority of gun homicides. And Vice President Kamala Harris insulted voters, saying rural citizens don't know how to photocopy. When asked if she could support voter ID laws, the vice president responded, I don't think that we should underestimate what that could mean, because in some people's minds, that means, well, you're going to have to Xerox or photocopy your ID to send it in to prove that you are who you are, she continued. Well, there are a whole lot of people, especially people who live in rural communities, who don't, there's no Kinko's, there's no Office Max near them. Well, a new study says most liberal white women under 30 have mental health issues. This is a Pew study uh, from 2020, but it's just starting to get more attention. Well, the story notes white women ages 18 to 29 who identified as liberal were given a a mental health diagnosis from medical professionals at a rate of 56.3% as compared to 28.4% in moderates and 27.3% in conservatives. You can read more about this in Evie magazine. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but there you have it. It's interesting to see the story try to unravel what's going on. Well, Arizona outlaws critical race theory training in local government. From that story, the governor uh, signed House Bill 2906, which prohibits the state and any local governments from requiring their employees to engage in orientation, training, or therapy that suggests an employee is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. For the governor's website, the bill passed the House legislature in a 31-25 vote and passed the Senate 16-12. to From another story, another bill just as important for the parental rights and involvement in their children's education, House, House Bill 2035. You can read more about that at townhall.com. Well, Toyota has declared no more donations to GOP members of the GOP who disputed the 2020 presidential election. They were the target of the Lincoln Project. Apparently, this is the result of being outed as the top donor uh, to these individuals. In other news, last week, a CNN medical analyst said it's time, well, to turn up the heat on those of us who, for one reason or another, haven't yet gone in for the, the, uh, the stick, the shot, if you will. Uh, Breitbart reported Dr. Jonathan Reiner, who teaches at Georgetown University, said that all students and staff will be required to be vaccinated in order to return to his campus, and the standard also should be enforced at private organizations. I do think it's time to start mandating vaccines, Reiner said on CNN, and I think that private industry and private organizations will do that. Now, we can't force you to take a jab in the arm, but there are many uh, jobs, perhaps, that can prevent you from working if you decide not to get vaccinated. So I think we need to uh, to be more proactive, and we will see industry take the lead in this, end quote. 
Now, the question was raised earlier, is it legal for that to be the case? When you're talking about private industry, yes, it would be considered legal. Most laws are prohibiting the actions of government, not private industry. Well, it wasn't just one CNN medical analyst, a CNN medical contributor and former Planned Parenthood president, Dr. Leanna Wynn, said on Saturday, it needs to be... um, It needs to be hard for people to remain unvaccinated. Right now, it's kind of the opposite. Even a CNN political analyst got into the act. Easy, accessible, and attractive are important. CNN's Julian Zeilzer um, remarking on the gimmicky, such as million-dollar lotteries and free college tuition, that a number of states have resorted to in order to entice their citizenry. Nobody should face barriers toward receiving vaccines, but citizens must also not see this as an optional inoculation. More on that in just a few moments from the land of the free. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, 51 minutes after four o'clock. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Dan Britton and Ron Forseth, co-authors of the Wisdom Challenge, experience the life-changing power of Proverbs. Coming up in the second hour of today's program. We're talking about uh, uh, vaccinations and whether or not they can be ma- made mandatory by private industry. At this point, 75 million American adults have chosen not to get the vaccine. This is, of course, a matter of individual liberty, a matter of whether we're uh, free to decide what substances uh, we have administered to our body, whether or not there's pressure to do so, what we will and won't have injected, And given that the vaccine is available free of charge to everyone, given that everyone who's worried about contracting the coronavirus has had plenty of time and opportunity to get the vaccine, we're not sure why um, um, there's so much freaking out, I guess. I I suppose if you're concerned uh, about catching it, if you have children who can't get the uh, the vaccine, you're concerned about them contracting it uh, from those who are not vaccinated, But this is what uh, one commentator suggested. Maybe we should ask Joe Biden. Last week, after all, he fanned the flames when he said our administration is going to devote the remainder of the summer to a special focus on five ways to make gains and getting those of you who are unvaccinated vaccinated. We need to go go community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood, and oftentimes door to door, literally knocking on doors to get help to the remaining people protected from the virus. So the, the calculus is that people haven't been vaccinated because either they haven't had access, they don't understand, um, or it's it's just been too difficult. Uh, literally knocking on doors to provide information and encourage people uh, to get vaccinated. Of course, there was a big brouhaha over whether or not the government should be keeping records on who's been vaccinated and who's not, and if that's a, a function and role of the government. Um, the re- What's remarkable here is that 86% of Democrats have received at least one shot of the vaccine, while just 45% of Republicans have, if uh, we're to believe the recent Washington Post-ABC news poll. Um, Because, uh, as um, it was put earlier, people that suffer Trump derangement syndrome, uh, this is a quote from Nate Jackson, uh, the people uh, to whom you you must not even whisper the word hydro. I used to be able to say this without thinking hydro hydroxychloroquine because Trump once talked about it are the ones lining up to get his vaccine. Meanwhile, Trump's voters are rejecting it in mass. Is this a political division that we're experiencing with regard to the vaccination? Now there are those who for um, 
health reasons have not been vaccinated. There are those who uh, are skeptical about some of the information that has been uh, given by um, so-called experts and members of the government. So there are all kinds of reasons why people have chosen not to be vaccinated. And here's one example that I've heard raised, at least among some, as to why they're they're not convinced that the um, vaccines that are not approved yet by the FDA uh, should be so readily made available. Well, the FDA is reportedly expected to administer a new warning on the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine and a possible link to uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare autoimmune nerve disorder. The Washington Post is citing four individuals, and that's a very small number, but citing four individuals familiar with the matter, said the warning is expected after about 100 cases of um, the uh, the syndrome occurred against a backdrop of nearly 12.8 million Johnson & Johnson vaccine recipients. If you happen to be among that 100, then it's a big deal. Johnson & Johnson has been in talks with the FDA and other regulators over the rare cases, the company said in a statement on Monday. The chance of having this occur is very low, and the rate of reported cases exceeds the background rate by a small degree, reads the statement from Johnson & Johnson, which also urged awareness over signs and symptoms of rare adverse events for prompt identification and treatment. Well, the FDA declined to comment when prompted. Um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention spokesperson confirmed that the CDC and FDA are monitoring reports of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS as it's also known, after receiving Johnson & Johnson Janssen COVID-19 vaccines. Reports of GBS after a receipt of the J&J COVID-19 vaccine in the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System are rare, but do likely indicate a small possible risk of those side effects following the vaccine. That's a quote from the health communication specialist and special assistant to the director of communications at the CDC. These cases have largely been reported about two weeks after vaccination and mostly in males, many ages 50 years and older. Well, they said available data don't show a similar trend for the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna after over 321 million doses were administered in the U.S. An independent group of experts advising the CDC plan uh, plan to discuss the issue at an upcoming meeting, uh, though it's not immediately clear when that meeting will take place. So a very small percentage of the population, apparently, and predominantly males, having this uh, response. And I'm hearing time and time again people who are concerned that insufficient time was given to um, determine whether or not side effects with uh, for people with certain conditions um, were to be expected. Meanwhile, San Francisco retailers are closing their doors early due to rampant shoplifting. A growing number of residents want to move away from the Golden City if the crime surge continues. A coordinated crime sprees in major cities in California, New York, and elsewhere are forcing retailers to close stores and limit operating hours as packs of shoplifters, who are apparently coordinating with one another, regularly make off with hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise to be resold online at street markets or returned for gift cards. Well, the crime sweeping San Francisco, five Target store locations are reducing their hours, their operating hours. They close at 6 p.m. instead of the usual 10 p.m. Managers are seeking to secure merchandise and employee safety. Organized gangs brazenly steal branded items, even with security present, as California raised the threshold for a felony charge from $450 to $950 in stolen goods. Well, San Francisco Police Chief William Scott 
said that thieves calculate the worth of shoplifted goods to fall below the felony threshold, meaning that officers cannot take action or uh, for misdemeanor theft, and stores have to be willing to hire security guards to make a private person arrest. The purpose of which I don't understand since charges will not be uh, filed. For more than a month, Target has been experiencing a significant and alarming rise in theft and security uh, incidents rather, in San Francisco stores. A Target spokesman said, a Target is engaging local law enforcement, elected officials, and community partners to address our concerns with the safety of our guests, team members, and communities as our top priority for temporarily reducing our operating hours. Well, Walgreens has closed 17 locations there over the last five uh, years, Citing this sort of theft, the San Francisco Chronicle reported in May, the regional vice president for pharmacy and retail operations there and in Hawaii said at a hearing at the time that the theft in Walgreens stores in San Francisco is four times the average of stores elsewhere in the country. Walgreens spends 35 times more on security in San Francisco than other areas where their stores are in operation. Just last week, there was a viral video from San Francisco It showed a band of thieves running out of a Neiman Marcus in Union Square carrying designer handbags before jumping into waiting getaway vehicles. The latest incident prompted California Retailers Association President Rachel Michelin to call for a statewide approach to this um, organized theft, arguing that local uh, leaders can no longer afford to snub law enforcement. We're going to take a quick break here at the top of the hour. We've got news and traffic coming up in a few moments. Also in the second hour, we'll hear from Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They're co-authors of the Wisdom Challenge. Also in the second hour, we'll talk about the U.S. commander in Afghanistan who has relinquished his position at a ceremony in the capital, Kabul, earlier today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up, we're going to share a classic interview with Dan Britton and Ron Forseth, co-authors authors rather of the Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. Well, the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan relinquished his position at a ceremony in the capital, Kabul, today, taking the United States a step closer to ending its 20-year war. The move came as Taliban insurgents continue to gain territory across the country. Another four-star general will assume authority from his U.S.-based post to conduct possible airstrikes in defense of Afghan government forces, at least until the U.S. withdrawal concludes the 31st of August. General Scott Miller has served as America's top commander in Afghanistan since 2018. He handed over command of what has become known as America's Forever War in its Waning days to Marine, rather, General uh, Frank McKenzie, the head of the U.S. Central Command. McKenzie will operate from Central Command headquarters in Tampa, Florida. Well, the handover took place in the heavily fortified Resolute Support Headquarters in the heart of Kabul at the time of uh, rapid uh, territorial gains by Taliban insurgents across the country. In a flag-passing ceremony, Miller remembered the U.S. and NATO troops killed in the nearly 20-year war, as well as the thousands of Afghans who lost their lives. He warned that relentless violence across Afghanistan is making a political settlement increasingly difficult. The outgoing commander said he has uh, told Taliban officials it's important that the military sides set the conditions for the peaceful political settlement in the country. 
We know that with that violence, it would be very difficult to achieve a political settlement. Well, the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, mostly funded by the United States and NATO, have put up resistance in some parts of the country, but overwhelmingly, Afghan government troops appear to have abandoned the fight. In recent weeks, the Taliban have gained several strategic districts, particularly along the border with Iran, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. Afghanistan's National Security Advisor, who attended the, uh, the handover, said the U.S. and NATO withdrawal has left a vacuum that resulted in Afghanistan's National Security Forces stranded on the battlefield without resupplies, sometimes running out of food and ammunition. In comments after the ceremony, he said the greatest impact of the withdrawal is a lack of aircraft to resupply troops. Currently, the government is regrouping to retake strategy, or rather strategic areas, and defend its cities against Taliban advances. Well, private jets descended on the Sun Valley as environmentalists gather to complain that you're not doing enough. The hypocrisy doesn't seem to bother them. A U.K. bill would ban boiling lobsters alive. The uh, Parliament is considering updating its animal welfare bill, which defends against the inhumane treatment of creatures with backbones. To, to include invertebrates such as lobsters, crabs, and octopuses, as well as squid. Well, the president is targeting big tech in a sweeping new executive order, cracking down on anti-competitive practices. However, the executive order has a major giveaway for tech giants via net neutrality. The White House is attempting to pin inflation on summer. And belly laugh of the week, intelligence agency uh, have... Um, have been busted for a blatant Photoshop job on their cover of their diversity report. Apparently there wasn't enough diversity to make an honest photo. Well, President Biden tells Vladimir Putin that Russia must crack down on cyber criminals and Capitol Police plan to use an army surveillance system on Americans to identify emerging threats. Well, according to the U.S. Pacific Intel chief, the coming Chinese attack on Taiwan could target other nations as well. Meanwhile, China vows retaliation after the Commerce Department blacklists companies there. ICE has opened border exemptions to pregnant moms, resulting in more anchor babies. And the FBI plans to assist the investigation of the Haitian president's assassination, but the U.S. has no plans to send troops. Around the nation, the CDC says schools should open in the fall, recommending masks for the unvaccinated. And of course, most children under 12, they don't have access to a vaccine nor would parents likely subject them to one. California will require face masks in school this fall, despite new CDC guidance. A remarkable expansion of cancel culture, a statue of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, or Sacagawea, is apparently the more accurate pronunciation, was toppled in Charlottesville. Well, thousands of teachers or indoctrinators vow to defy state bans on critical race theory. And intersectionality wars, Boston Pride is shutting down amid criticism over their lack of inclusion. Well, the woman accused of running over a George Floyd protester in Denver has been found not guilty of assault. Well, 1804, former, on this day in history, former United States Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton dies after being shot in a pistol duel with Vice President Aaron Burr. On this day in history, 1924, the post office has announced it will now accept airmail letters for countries where the domestic rate applies. 1967, USA airline strike. The strike by workers in the airline industry continues to affect five major airlines with little hope seen of an early settlement. 
and some airlines are now laying workers off, including Eastern Airlines. On this day in history, 1993, a Japanese tsunami following an earthquake estimated at 7.8, which generated giant waves, a tsunami left roughly 200 people dead on the island of Akashira in Japan. 1995, a heat wave in Wisconsin and Illinois kills 1,000. The heat wave for that affects Illinois and Wisconsin starts when a heat advisory is issued in Chicago, uh, warning of an impending record-breaking heat wave. By the time the heat wave ends one week later, nearly 2,000 people are dead in Illinois and Wisconsin, with temperatures being recorded in Chicago up to 106 degrees Fahrenheit. And that was in 1995. We clocked 116 here in Oregon. On this day in history, 2012, Saudi Arabia to send uh, two female athletes to the Olympic Games. The International Olympic Committee had confirmed that Saudi Arabia would send female athletes, Sarah Attar, uh, for the women's 800, and Wajan Ali Siraj, there are many other names, for judo to the London 2012 Summer Games. The inclusion of Saudi women in the Games would mark the first time in the history of the Games that there would be a female athlete from every competing country. Female athletes from Brunei and Gutter uh, would also be entering the Games for the first time. And finally, on this day in history, 2013, Ireland approves abortion. Ireland's lower house in Parliament voted in favor of legalizing abortion in cases where it would save the life of the mother. This is the first time the Irish government would vote in favor of any type of abortion. Well, swashbuckling billionaire Richard Branson hurtled into space aboard his own winged rocket ship on Sunday, bringing astro-tourism a step closer to reality and beating out his exceedingly richer rival, Jeff Bezos. Well, the nearly 71-year-old Branson and five crewmates from the Virgin Galactic Space Tourism Company reached an altitude of 53.5 miles, that's 86 kilometers if you want to know, over the New Mexico desert, enough to experience three to four minutes of weightlessness and witness the curvature of the Earth and then glided back home to a runway landing. The whole thing, it was just magical. The jubilant um, uh, Brunson said on his return aboard the white space plane named Unity. The brief up-and-down flight, the space plane's portion, took only about 15 minutes, or about as long as Alan Shepard's first U.S. space flight in 1961, was a splashy and unabashedly commercial plug for Virgin Galactic, which plans to start taking paying customers on joyrides next year. Bezos sent his congratulations, saying can't wait to join the club, though he also took to Twitter a couple of days earlier to enumerate the ways in which he believes his company's tourist rides will be better. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Dan Britton and Ron Forseth in this classic interview co-authors of the Wisdom Challenge. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Our culture prioritizes wealth and fame, but undervalues the pursuit of wisdom. When we possess and apply wisdom, however, that's the only way we can achieve so much more for God and for ourselves and others. But we also yield greater impact. Well, Solomon was one of the greatest men in the Bible. He was the son of King David, who took the throne in at 19 years old and ruled until he died at age 59. God offered Solomon whatever he wanted, and rather than choosing wealth, fame, or possessions, all of which he gained at some point, Solomon asked for wisdom. 
which we find in the book of Proverbs. Well, in the Wisdom Challenge, experience the life-changing power of Proverbs. My two next guests, authors Dan Britton and Ron Forseth, share simple, effective strategy for pursuing wisdom and passing it on. Well, Dan Britton serves as the chief field officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, an organization I love, was a member of as a college athlete, where he's been on staff since 1990. He has co-authored six books. Ron Forseth is a business strategist, mentor, and ultra uh, distance walker. He has uh, lived in many cities and countries, including Mexico, China, Hong Kong, and uh, Mongolia. He is the founding executive editor of churchleaders.com and longtime uh, general manager of SermonCentral.com, the world's largest online community of pastors. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Georgine. Uh, you know, wisdom is something that's considered somewhat arcane by many in our culture today. Can we begin by just defining, uh, by defining rather, what wisdom is? We live in an information age, and we might assume that because we can consult our phone, the Oracle of Delphi, <laughs> and get answers to virtually any question, that we are men and wisdom uh, and women who possess great wisdom. What is wisdom in the information age? Uh, you know, I think there's probably over a million dif- different definitions of wisdom, <laughs> but obviously as you come to God's Word, uh, God's wisdom is different than the world's wisdom, man's wisdom. I love Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers. Yes. Chuck Swindoll says is, wisdom is seeing things the way God sees things. And when we have the filter and the ability to put everything through the God's eyes, God's heart, God's understanding— that, I believe, is wisdom. Ron has a different definition. He likes the wisdom. Ron? Georgine, I like to define wisdom simply as unity with God. When we've got unity with Him, we've got His mind, we've got wisdom, and when we've got disunity with Him, we fall into foolishness. So unity with God is how I define wisdom. Great definitions of wisdom, uh, which we generally, as a culture, Lack, but the pursuit of wisdom is something that we are encouraged to do. Now, um, you write about uh, Solomon, and he—I should say—he writes in uh, the Proverbs a significant wisdom. He asked for it early on in his life, and yet he was not a perfect man himself. How would you sum up the life of Solomon, as uh, reflected in his prayer for wisdom early on, and then the life that followed? I think the life of uh, uh, Solomon is a great uh, case study, right? You know, we, we, we see a guy that literally could have had anything from God. You know, in his dream, God asked him, what, what do you ask for? He literally said wisdom, then all the other things got given to him. But yet after that, he struggled, you know, to put that into action. And so, you know, one of the things that Ron and I believe is that you can have all the wisdom at your fingertips, you have all the information, godly information that you desire at your fingertips. But unless you put it into action, it is nothing. So one of the things, Georgine, we, we say in the book is, is we say wisdom minus relationship equals nothing. So wisdom plus relationships equals impact and influence. And so I think where Solomon struggled was he might have been the wisest man in the world. He just didn't take that wisdom and infuse it into relationships. That's where it kind of got sideways. The people he led, the people that he married, it just got sideways. And I believe God's wisdom always has to be in the context of relationships. Can you explain the importance of the three wisdom challenge elements? And we're talking about your book, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. 
What are the three uh, wisdom challenge elements? Sure. Well, it says in Proverbs twice, it says that wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire compares with her. And so we have to start with the decision that we will pursue wisdom. It's so valuable, but we must pursue it. So pursue is the first element. The second element, as Dan says, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. We have to partner with others as we go through Proverbs. And then it's not something to keep to ourselves. We want to pass it on to others. So when we get done with the wisdom challenge, the next step is to do the wisdom challenge with somebody else and to challenge them to do it with somebody else. So pursue, partner, and pass it on are the three elements of the wisdom challenge. Why does God put such great value on wisdom? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Georgine, that twice, as Ron has referenced to, to it in Proverbs, it says there's nothing more valuable than wisdom. We, we like to call that the nothing promise. Like, it's, there's nothing that can top it. It's, it's a trump card. And so we believe that, that that wisdom challenge, that wisdom promise that God gives us, that if we seek after wisdom, if we ask God, as it says in James, that, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And what does he say, Georgine? He says, hmm. he will give it to you not just a little bit, but he'll give it to you generously. And so we believe as you press in and you pursue wisdom, you partner with him, you pass wisdom on, that God will actually give you double blessing in the wisdom. And really, that's where it started, Georgine, in 2012 when Ron called me and as a friend for many years said, hey, I want to go through the book of Proverbs together. And that's how the Wisdom Challenge began back in 2012. Oh, that's that's so incredible. And I just want to pause for a moment and consider what that scripture says. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. I, you think about that. You, we go to Google all the time when we're trying to find something out. The God of the universe has invited us into his presence to admit, you know, Lord, I, I lack wisdom. We can ask him and he promises that he will answer that request in the same way that he asked Solomon what he wanted. He's given us an invitation to ask him to give us wisdom. That is an incredible invitation. And I wonder how many of us or rather how few of us take advantage of that amazing invitation. I'll tell you, it's that decision to receive God's gift of wisdom that changes everything. Yes. Uh, if you if you go back and you look at the the life of Solomon when he did receive it, uh, he, he received uh, he received riches, he received dominion, he received knowledge. He was a botanist, he was a biologist. The Queen of Sheba came to him, and and there was not one single question she asked that he could not answer because God gave him in wisdom. So it's it's this gem that uh, we are we're wise to pursue wisdom and we're fools to neglect it. Yeah. And we have the advantage of the completed scriptures. We also have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are essentially without excuse. Yes. Amen to that. You know, Georgine, uh, you know, it's interesting even to follow up on that is about what we ask for, right? Like, what do we as humans desire to have in our lives? Sometimes wisdom isn't something that comes to the top of our mind. You know, mm-hmm. it was interesting, uh, several years ago, a uh, survey asked 700 different people, we, we documented in our book, they said, if you could say in one word what you would want more in life, what would that be? So they, they recorded the top 10 answers, and, you know, you had happiness, number one, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, and passion. Which that list, Georgine, is a great list of great things that anybody would want to have, even as followers of Christ, what we want to have. But you know what's lacking? The glaring 
thing that's not in the top 10 list is wisdom. What they didn't say is wisdom. And so I believe the very basic thing that we're talking about, 31 chapters, the book of, book of Proverbs, Solomon's writings, is this very thing called wisdom. Yeah. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. The book fits easily in your hand. It's beautifully uh, bound in leather-like material and is designed uh, as a um, as a devotional. Describe for our listeners uh, how the book is laid out. Well, actually, I need to take a break. When we come back, I'll ask you to, uh, to describe how the book is laid out and how you see it best being um, uh, put to use. Again, my guests are Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They're the co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experiencing the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with co-authors Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They co-authored The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. Dan Britton serves as the Chief Field Officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, where he's been on staff, uh, staff rather since the 90s. Ron Forseth is a business strategist, mentor, ultra-distance walker. And I have to ask you what that is in just a moment, because I've walked a couple of marathons, but ultra-distance, I think, is something beyond that. He's the founding executive editor of churchleaders.com and longtime general manager of sermoncentral.com. Um, uh, so we're just delighted to have both of you with us. Now, before I ask the other question, Ron, ultra distance walker, what does that mean? Well, you probably have seen the movie Forrest Gump, and he just gets going and he keeps going, and that's what I like to do. I like to walk long, long distances. I will say this. If you've completed a marathon, you're a tougher person than I am, but uh, <laughs> I like to... Uh, you know, walk. I've walked uh, from Monterey Bay to Morro Bay along the Big Sur coast. I've walked from uh, the Kansas border, uh, 186 miles to the top of Pikes Peak. I just like to to walk and and spend time with God. And I uh, I'm, I'm trying to make my way now from Pikes Peak over to the Four Corners across all of Colorado. That's a, a few examples of the ultra walking that I like to do. Wow, that's that's incredible. And as I mentioned, uh, Dan is serves with the Fellowship of uh, Christian Athletes. It's an organization that really helped keep me grounded when I was an athlete at the University of Oregon. So I just love what FCA uh, does all across the uh, all across the country. Yeah, you know, Georgine, it's been amazing in the thirty years I've been serving with FCA. You know, when I first started out, we were U.S. bordered and and just basically focused on four percent of the world's population. So back in 2013, God kind of led our leadership team to say, hey, you know, there's 96% of the world's population outside the U.S., and there's over 200 countries outside the U.S., and maybe God might be leading us to become a international ministry. And so in 2013, we took that bold step of faith, Georgine, and wouldn't you know that now we're in 106 countries outside the U.S. Wow. that God has raised up incredible ministry around the world. I'm heading uh, to Pakistan on Wednesday, just got back from Dubai and Egypt. It, God is doing amazing things outside our, our country. Oh, that is amazing and so good to hear. Thank you. Well, just before the break, I was asking uh, one or both of you to describe how the Wisdom Challenge uh, is structured, how you see uh, readers using this as a devotional, as a, you know, one sit down and read from cover to cover. Uh, describe for our listeners who don't have this volume in their hands um, how it's designed. Sure, Dan, you want to lose that? You want me to? Go, Ron, go. Okay. You're, you're the guy that challenged yeah, me. Yeah. I, I, I got the call from you, and, and you said, hey, let's get through Proverbs together. And I'll take, well, let's go. 
Okay, so, so Georgine, we've already talked about wisdom's impact and, and how it happens in the context of relationship. That's chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter two is wisdom's promise. Uh, more precious than rubies, nothing you desire can compare with it. Then you've got wisdom's invitation. And, and we've got this image in Proverbs repeatedly where wisdom stands on the, the top of the wall at the gates of the city and shouts, come to me and, and receive wisdom for yourself. And, and it's, it's like, uh, and if you don't, you're crazy, you know, uh, and then and then you've got uh, wisdom's gift in, in, in chapter uh, four, and then what's very interesting is in chapter five um, we talk about wisdom's tree, and we each have the ability to grow not just a, a tree but a forest of trees of people growing in wisdom, and and uh, the math of that's astounding because uh, what happens. You do it with 12 people, and those 12 people do it with 12 people. It, it, it multiplies and spreads. So that's wisdom's tree. And then there's the legacy that we leave as a result of acquiring wisdom and the legacy we live. We leave with our families and with those that are uh, in, in our lives. And then finally, uh, we talk about wisdom's journey, and it's it, it takes us through the book of Proverbs uh, chapter by chapter with another person, and that's the devotional element where we, we experience it with another, not just once, but over and over again, like Billy Graham, who actually went through the book of Proverbs every day for more than 70 years. That's more mm-hmm. than 840 times through the book of Proverbs. You've got uh, 915 verses in the book. You've got 15,000 words. And if you had just five insights um, coming out of each one of those words, you have 75,000 insights. That's enough for a new insight every day for hundreds of years. It's just packed. So uh, but that's how the book's laid out. Well, and the, the amazing thing is you can start if you're a new believer and you're 12, or if you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time and you're in your 70s, this is a volume, because it focuses on the, wib- uh, the wisdom found in Proverbs, that can benefit any reader. Now, I especially appreciate it at the back of the book, as you pointed out, um, there's a, a, a call to go through the book of Proverbs verse by verse that you have in the book. Uh, a line segment where my verse, my insight, where people can record the wisdom that they're picking up from God's Word uh, as recorded in the Proverbs. Yeah, it's it's, it's really like a field manual. We, we designed mm-hmm. it to be like, hey, I, I buy a book, share it with someone else. I invite them to be my Proverbs partner for the month. And actually, I just mailed out a copy today to a friend in New York that I'm going to be entering into the Wisdom Challenge next month. I can't wait. I'm just finishing up with a friend here in Kansas City that I've known for 30 years. It's been an amazing experience, and Calvin and I have reconnected recently, and given us a chance to be in God's Word, and he's already identified three guys he's going to share it with next month. So my friend in New York, I just mailed out today a copy of the Wisdom Challenge to him, so he can be able to begin to go through it. But, but basically, Georgine, I mean, the power is the power of wit, Right. You know, mm-hmm. before Ron called me and said, hey, I want to invite you into this challenge, I had read a proverb a day for many years. I mean, year after year after year, I just incorporated it as part of my devotion. As one part of my devotion is spend five, six minutes, read the proverb of the day, 31 chapters, 31 days, easy to remember. But when he said, hey, I want to do it with you, that changed everything. It's like the proverb that says, iron sharpening iron, right? Mm-hmm. And so... It was a double blessing as Ron and I began to go through Proverbs together, and I read a chapter, he read a chapter on his own, I was texting him what God showed me, 
He was texting me what God shared to him. I was learning from him. He was challenged by what I was saying. We are both benefiting kind of this double blessing from God. And I believe Proverbs is meant to do with others, not just by yourself. And so that was the big breakthrough. Oh, that's just amazing. You know, I've never gone through the Proverbs with someone else. I, um, I'm i a primary caregiver for my mother who lives with my husband and me. She's 90 years old, and her vision is such that she's no longer able to read God's Word on her own. And I'm thinking, uh, you just give me the thought, I'm thinking maybe we'll take the wisdom challenge and go verse by verse uh, in our devotional together and just um, do do that together. And I think it's going to be a wonderful time, certainly a fellowship. It's in God's word and pursuing wisdom because that's a lifelong uh, pursuit. Um, this is a beautiful little book that I think that she and I can really benefit by. So thank you for that, uh, that uh, suggestion. Yeah, I'm smiling ear to ear, Georgine, just thinking about the month of July, how you and your mom are going to be able to connect in God's word through this wisdom challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, did you want to weigh in as well? Well, I, I just want to say I'm confident God's going to show up and give you guys a gem every single day, and then you can share those gems with each other. So that's that's 31 times two. That's 62 gems coming your way, and, and I'm I'm really excited for you guys to experience that together. What a great yeah, idea! I, I'm excited too. We both read the Proverbs. You know, we're familiar with you know some of the verses, but to sit down and do that together, I think it will be much more memorable, and I think it will penetrate our hearts more deeply because we're doing that as you've pointed out, um, in relationship. Now, where can our listeners learn more about the Wisdom Challenge? Easy. Wisdomchallenge.com. Wisdomchallenge.com. We have a great website that we created with resources, videos. Uh, Even as Ron said earlier about the Wisdom Tree, you can actually go in and start your own tree and begin to have people that you did the Wisdom Challenge with to be able to know the impact the legacy that you're having, the wisdom legacy that you're having. So uh, wisdomchallenge.com is the place to go to, or you can pick up our book on any of the outlets like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other places. Excellent. I'm already thinking my mom might want to do this with some of her grandchildren and then her great-grandchildren. We can develop a wisdom tree that will give her um, an outlet for ministry within our, our small little family. Gentlemen, such a delight to talk with you today, and I appreciate Uh, The book that you have written, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. And I thank you so much for the time that you've taken to talk with us here today about it. Thank you. It's been very special. Thank you so much, Georgine. Excited about you and your your mom and her her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids going through it. That's great. (laughs) Thank you so much. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I was looking at Christianity Today online and was really struck by an article by Dominic Pino about the enduring lessons from the very short book of Haggai. Now, when's the last time you read that particular book? Now, I know some of you are raising your hands like, ooh, ooh, me, me. But most of us don't read that particular book very often, if at all. Uh, and uh, Dominique uh, points out that it's one of the shortest books in the Bible. It comes in uh, two chapters, less than two pages. It's the story of a prophet whom God uses to tell the Israelites to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. And he encourages his readers to give a read to that uh, story 
It won't take much time, and it has some pretty good lessons. So let me begin by encouraging you to do that. Now, to understand the context of the book of Haggai, we need to first look back at Ezra. Now, the Bible is arranged not in chronological order, but instead by categories of writing. A book of history, Ezra is uh, with the other books of history, earlier in the Old Testament. It tells the story of the Israelites returning to the Promised Land after they were held as captives in Babylon. Now, you might recall that the Babylonians, they'd invaded and destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple built under King Solomon. The Persians under Cyrus the Great had conquered the Babylonians, and Cyrus decided to let the Israelites return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But Ezra tells us that after Cyrus died, a new Persian king, Artaxerus, he ordered that the construction of the temple stop. Now, the temple remained partially complete for years until a new king, Darius, ascended to the throne. It's at that point that Haggai shows up. Two chapters. Unlike some of the other prophets, we don't really know much about Haggai other than uh, that he was one. God speaks of him and calls out the Israelites' complacency. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. That's from the first chapter, the first of only two chapters in the book. Then he asks the, the rhetorical question that puts the Israelites on the spot. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? while this house, referring to the house of God, remains in ruins. God then tells the Israelites through Haggai, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Tomorrow we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist about whether or not people are prepared to return to the church. And this reminds me of this call to build his house. Now, we don't have to use our hands and provide materials to build a physical structure, but the principle, I think, remains the same. Well, Haggai utters that injunction twice. Give careful thought to your ways. There are plenty of times when God doesn't make sense, when his plans are far beyond our ability to comprehend, when we're called to trust him, even when it seems like we shouldn't. But this was not one of those times. God is asking the Israelites to use the brains he gave them, and he believes that their careful consideration will lead them to obedience. God chose to meet the Israelites where they were. He addresses their hardships. He asks them to think about why they were facing those hardships. Then he says, that the building of the temple is the natural consequence of their careful consideration. This was an order from the almighty king of the universe, the God of Israel, but it wasn't a proclamation from the throne. It was a corrective from a loving father, disciplining his children to obedience. And I think that we might be in a season very similar, a corrective from a loving father, disciplining his children to obedience. Well, unlike many other times in the story of the Israelites, the people obeyed right away. We find that the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. I wonder if we fear the Lord. Well, building a temple in the 6th century B.C. was very hard work. You might remember that the Israelites had started rebuilding. They stopped, and we know from Ezra that it would take them another four years after Haggai's prophecy to finish the work. About a month into the construction, God spoke through Haggai again. It was a simple command for the governor, the high priest, and all the people. 
be strong, he says, in the second chapter. The second would being the only other chapter in the, in the book. He comforts them and reminds them, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I just want to repeat that. Be strong. He comforts them and reminds them, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God has covenanted with us through his son for this very season and this purpose that we would be the church. I'm not suggesting that uh, we are Israel. We are the church. And I believe the principle here applies to us as well. Well, God wasn't content to just tell the Israelites what to do and to move on. He showed them grace. He reminded them of the promises he made to them, and he encouraged them in their work. Again, God was under no obligation to do this. He gave a command and his word is final, but he chose to still encourage them and demonstrate his immense patience with the Israelites. And by the way, God has not changed. He is still patient with us. And when he referenced the Exodus, he was reminding them of something that took place a millennium earlier, and he was still with them just as he always has been. Later in the second chapter, he reprises that same phrase from before, give careful thought. He continues to speak through Haggai. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. From this day on, give careful thought to the day when the foundations of the Lord's temple was laid. From this day on, I will bless you. Again, from the second chapter of that very short book of Haggai. God is demonstrating to the Israelites that his way bears fruit, and he's making sure they noticed. He doesn't issue arbitrary commands just because he can. He has a plan, and he loves us. He can't bless disobedience. It's on us to obey. Only then, says Romans 12, 2, can we test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't let anyone tell you the Old Testament is, well, all doom and gloom, God demonstrated his grace to the Israelites through Haggai, and Haggai's faithfulness bore great fruit for all the people. Read the books that don't get talked about as much, and you'll be surprised at what you find. And again, in this season, I believe God is calling us to return to his house, to worship and honor him as we did before, and he will make us fruitful, and he will bless us, just as he told the people of Israel to return to completing the temple in their day. Well, tomorrow, as I mentioned, we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. We're going to talk about uh, the church and whether or not attendance is relevant post-pandemic in the 21st century. So I hope you'll join us for that. I want to thank uh, James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering. I don't need to thank Dan Rice because I didn't get to use his office. kind of miss it a little bit, but I'm glad I get to go home to him at the end of the day. And Chris Williams for all that he does. <laughs> He's in the engineer's booth. I had to remember him. Hey, have a great night. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.